You're listening to Equipped, the preaching ministry of First Baptist Dry Prong in Dry Prong, Louisiana. Happy Palm Sunday. Today we're going to look at Luke's account of what occurred on this day in Luke chapter 19. And we're also going to talk about the significance of what occurred on this day from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. I invite you this morning to... Turn to Luke's Gospel once again in Luke chapter 19. And we're also going to read in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 in just a minute. Luke chapter 19 and Hebrews 10. Uh, majority of what I'm going to read is from Hebrews 10, but it is Palm Sunday and I want to read Luke's account of what happened on this day some 2,000 years ago. I hope that you all had a chance to go to the revival this week and uh, I know many of you have, and I've heard many different comments about it. Uh, everybody seems to have their, their own thoughts about what they saw, what they, what they liked. Uh, if you ask me, if you were to ask me, Brother Kevin, what did you like about the revival this week? And I could have a whole host of things that I liked. Uh, I really liked uh, the, the mandolin and the banjo. That was kind of cool. So if any of you guys know how to play that, Brother Ray Mike could use you. That was really neat. I enjoyed uh, some of the, some of the funny stories Brother Bill shared that he saw across uh, that he's seen across the world really traveling, related with some of those. Uh, I enjoyed the preaching. I enjoyed the, the altar calls. But if you were to ask me, Brother Kevin, what did you enjoy the very most about this week? I think I would have to say, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I enjoyed seeing the joy, the worship that I saw this week. It's very powerful to see. I imagine it was between six to maybe even 800 people there on the highest attended night. And it's amazing when you see these people come together in one accord and rejoice greatly. When we sing like we mean it, when, when I saw hands go up, when I saw tears flow down, when I saw genuine, true, authentic worship. It revives my spirit because you see that's something we don't see very often, unfortunately. I've been Baptist my whole life. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't be anything else. I think our doctrine is as solid as it possibly could be. We might be wrong on some things, but it's not much. I've went over that Baptist faith and message a lot. But I think it's such a shame that, that Baptists get associated as a people that aren't excited about what this week means to us, not excited about our Savior. And I'll also share with you that, that I take some responsibility in this because me and everybody else that I know, I've seen it with my own eyes. I've seen grown men and women get so angry and so worked up and so joyful over an LSU football game where they yell, curse, scream, even break a TV. When the Saints lost that playoff game to the Rams, I preached that Sunday night and I saw the whole congregation about in tears. We were so upset about it because we get emotional over the things we care about. And these same people that get so emotional over these things will come to church on Sunday and will sing victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Man, shame on us. Shame on us. Now I want to tell you, you can be excited and you can be crazy. You don't have to be one or the other. Excitement looks like, which looks like singing what you believe in. We do have the victory and we do have reason to rejoice greatly. We do have reason to gather together every single Sunday. 
We do have reasons to, to, to lift our hands. We do have reasons to pray out loud. We do have reasons to come to the altar. We have reason to rejoice greatly. This Palm Sunday that we celebrate, this original Palm Sunday that, that the Gospels tell us about, was a day of rejoicing. And I want to read Luke's account this morning. I'm going to read some of Matthew's account tonight, just so you know. But it begins in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to read verse 28 to verse 40. Luke writes this, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever set. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, just like Jesus told them, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they drew near, they, they, and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. And as they went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in, heavy, in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So you see, it was a day of rejoicing. In John's gospel, we read that this uh, occurred six days. Well, the anointing at Bethany occurred six days before the Passover. The next day was the triumphal entry. This Sunday was Palm Sunday. We read about a people here that were excited this was the moment they had been waiting for. Literally hundreds of years, Jews had been in bondage. Perhaps now, finally now, salvation and freedom had come. Peace may be finally coming. We see in verse 37, it says there was a multitude of disciples here. They were happy. They were rejoicing. It's likely these people knew of what's called the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And they thought this was the moment they'd see it all fulfilled. I'm sure the majority of them knew the prophecy that this refers to in Zechariah 9.9. Where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. But sadly... They were looking for a king to conquer Rome, not a savior to save mankind. This story right here is a perfect example of how God doesn't always work like we want him to. He works like we need him to. They were looking for a great powerful line, but God was sending another Passover lamb. This week was not about Jesus conquering Rome. It was about Jesus conquering sin and death. This week, 2,000 years later, 
This week isn't about celebrating eggs and bunnies. This week is about sacrifice. This week is about salvation. This is the week that salvation was brought to the whole wide world. This is the week that God provided a Passover lamb for you and I. The disciples, the multitudes, the Pharisees. The way I read the text, I don't see anybody except Jesus knowing what was about to occur this week. Knowing what was about to happen before their very eyes. But today, on this Palm Sunday, we know the events. We know what occurred. We know how it occurred. We know why it occurred. In other words, we have the whole picture of what happened and 99.9% of the big picture of what will happen. So that's Luke's account. Now I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And I want you to see why we have reason to rejoice today. The significance of what occurred this Holy Week some 2,000 years ago. I think the writer of, of Hebrews just says it so perfectly. Of what, what occurred. I'm beginning in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. I'm going to read the verse 18. And he says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, talking about Jesus, a capital M, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made, are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The writer of Hebrews, nobody really knows who it is. Oddly enough, a lot of people believe that Luke may be actually be the author of Hebrews. Some believe Paul, some believe Apollos. We don't really know. But it's written to a group of, of Hebrews. It's, it's, it's written to people that are familiar with this sacrificial system. And the writer is writing these believers and he's telling them the significance of what happened this Holy Week. I see two truths. Two big truths in this passages that we read that happened this week. Two things that we need to remember why we can rejoice greatly today. The first I see is mentioned in verse 12. But this man, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. This man, Jesus, is now at the right hand of God. The tomb is empty. You will not find his bones. We realize this, we can realize this for sure, that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. He is prophet, he is priest, he is king, he is savior. He's also my friend. Church, I want to tell you, we should realize this truth. And if you really realize this truth, you'll recognize his deity. You'll kneel before the king. You'll submit to the king. You'll serve the king. Love, so amazing, so divine, like, like Ethan said, Evan said, he's worthy of everything. Church, I just want to tell you, a, a Christian that really believes 
that really believes that this man Jesus spread his arms right open for us and really, really, truly believes that he's in heaven right now. He's looking down for us. He's interceding for us. His arms are still wide open, wanting the lost to come to him. For a Christian to believe that and not to submit to his lordship. For a Christian to to believe that and not spend time worshiping him. A Christian that's not worshiping, a Christian that's not submitting is a Christian that is sinning or maybe is not even a Christian at all. Maybe it's just a Christian in name only. Man, that changes everything when we truly believe that Jesus is at the right hand of God. But also, during this week, I would say this. Just like Jesus said on that old rugged cross, it is finished, tettle stop. We see in verse 17, the writer of Hebrews reminds his readers that it is indeed finished. Second truth, it's finished. Verse 7, talking about the Holy Spirit, then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Back up in verse 12, or verse 14, for by one offering he has perfected forever. Those who are being sanctified. Notice the words forever. Notice the words no more. What he's saying here is that it's done. It only had to be one sacrifice. One perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, provided it for all of us. Do you realize what that means for us today? That means you don't have to carry the weight of your sins anymore. I saw somebody say this week, We say we don't sin very much, but consider this. If you only sin three times a day, three times a day, let's just say three times a day. Well, one time today I didn't obey my parents. One time today I had an impure thought. One time today I didn't love the Lord thy God with all my heart, soul, and mind. If that's all I did today, that's all I did every single day. I'm 39 years old. That equates to about 43,000 sins. So if I died today, I would go to God Almighty with the list of a minimum of probably 40 to 50,000 sins. What a condition that would be. But the writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus died for all that. Forever and no more. You don't have to carry the weight of your sins no more. It doesn't matter what you're holding on to today. If you truly repent, if you truly give it to Jesus, it's gone forever. The Bible says you're a new creature in Christ. Church, I just wanted to to tell you, some of you need to be reminded of this today, to stop being defined by your past. Stop thinking of yourself as unqualified. Stop thinking of yourself as unloved. Because if you have the blood, you have God's gift of salvation. And nothing, absolutely nothing can take that away today. The truth is the world may always remember your past. But Christ wipes it clean and he does not. I can't think of a greater reason to rejoice It's reason to rejoice, it's reason to praise, it's reason to worship, and it's reason to serve because of what occurred this week. So what do we do with these two truths? The writer of Hebrews, he don't just leave them hanging. He goes on and he says, therefore, you know these things. You know that he died on a cross. You know that it was one sacrifice. You know he's at the right hand of God. You know it's finished. 
So what do we do now? In the next few verses, 19 through 25, he says this, Therefore, brethren, brothers, brothers in Christ, those who have accepted his sacrifice, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. So we see what Jesus has done. And it's good to know we don't have to have a high priest anymore. We have Jesus. Our sin problem's been dealt with, and this should result in some big changes in the life of a believer. Because of the blood, here's truth number one. It's in verse 19. We should be bold. Bold. Very bold. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. In the old sacrificial system, only one person could go in that holy of holies. But now we have the, the blood of Jesus. We can go right to the Father through Jesus. We should be bold in that, but we should be bold in other areas too. Christians, he doesn't say that you need to, to be rude. He doesn't say to be a jerk. But I want to tell you, we should be bold. As Christians, we have the right to boldly stand up for what is right and boldly stand against what is wrong. We have the, the Word of God. If we believe it, we should boldly stand up for the Bible. We should stand against what it calls sin. And church, let me tell you, when you tolerate or God forbid, even celebrate sin in any of its forms, you're minimizing Jesus' blood. I want to encourage you today to be bold. Boldly share what God has done for you. Boldly share the Easter story. How can I be bold? Because I know and I believe with all of my heart I'm forgiven and that Jesus is King. He's at the right hand of the Father right now this morning. We should be bold. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of seeing timid Christians. Oh, we'll boldly, we'll boldly tell you who we're going to vote for. We'll boldly tell you what we think about our president. We'll boldly tell you what we think about our favorite baseball teams, softball teams, basketball teams. But when it comes to Jesus, we get all timid and we get all shy, worried that we're going to hurt somebody's feelings. I'm telling you, it's time for that to stop. It's time for us to be bold. It's time for us to not be timid. And you don't have to be, I'm not talking about being a jerk. I'm talking about being confident. I'm talking about being bold. Second thing, he says we should be, have a full assurance of our faith. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. A full assurance of faith. Man, when I realize those two things, when I realize when Jesus says it's finished, it's finished, our faith in Jesus should be full of assurance. You want to disprove Christianity? They've been trying ever since the original 12 were around. 
And I want to tell you, here's how you, here's how you do it. You go find the bones of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, you won't because it's at the right hand of the Father. The tomb is as empty today as it was on Easter Sunday. Don't have a fickle faith. Have a full faith. A fully faithful person has that evil conscience seared in their minds or on things above. It changes everything. I'm not wondering about if Jesus is coming back. My only question is when. When's He coming back? My faith is full and yours should be too. Thirdly, He says... In verse 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You go read Luke's account, I think it's just, in all the Gospels really, he who promised is faithful. Jesus was faithful in everything that he said. On that day, he told them about the, the, the temple being destructed. He told them that he was going to be crucified and rise again on the third day. Well, church, let me tell you, we can be confident in the other things he said as well. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, he is. This isn't a maybe type hope, it's a certain hope. If you're certain your sins are forgiven, if you're certain the tomb is empty, you can be certain that heaven's await for he, he who promised is indeed faithful. He was faithful about his death. He was faithful about his burial. He was faithful about his resurrection. He was faithful when he promised the destruction of the temple that still lays, that still lays in ruins. So believe me, you can rest assured that everything else he promised is coming too. He's coming back. He's preparing a place for us. It could be today, the day he comes back. Hold fast to your hope. That helps with the other things. That helps me be bold. That helps me be sure of my faith. I'm looking forward, not looking behind. Fourthly, he says in verses 24 to 25, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. What day? Not the day that, gonna, that Jesus is going to wipe my sins clean. That day's already happened. The day He comes back as the line. Fourth thing, let us consider one another and stir up love and good works. Why do we meet on the Lord's day? Why do we worship? Why do we rejoice greatly? To stir up love and good works. To let the Holy Spirit move. To learn, love, build, exhort one another. To worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, how sad it is that so many of us will meet on Christmas and Easter. Maybe Mother, maybe Father's Day. And we just neglect everything else. I tell you, we've got reason to meet. We've got reason to love one another. And the last thing that, that I wrote in here is that we have reason to rejoice greatly. Oh, church, if you pay close attention in this Hebrews passage, the things we've read, we've read about faith, read about hope, and we've read about love. If you've been washed by the blood, you should have those three, three, three things visible and present in your life. And what a reason to rejoice. Faith, hope, and love, Jesus brings all these things. 
I'm going to return back to Luke now. Back in Luke chapter 19. And I'm going to read a couple of verses. Just two. Because we go back to Palm Sunday and I said that everybody was rejoicing. And not everybody was rejoicing. The Pharisees were displeased. But somebody else was upset. And it really is the person that you would think is, would not be upset. The one being worshipped is the one that is actually weeping. That's what happens in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, where we left off a minute ago. Jesus is on his colt on the donkeys riding in Jerusalem. People are waving in the other gospels. It says they're waving palm branches. They're throwing their clothes. They're saying Hosanna. And he gets near Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus does. It says in verse 41, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you had known. You go read that. That's this word for weeping. It's the Greek word kaleo. And it's, it's more than just tears. It's a serious mourning type weeping. And Jesus says, look, if you had only known. You should have known. This goes all the way back. Remember when we studied Daniel a few months ago. This goes all the way back. Scholars say that. That the, that 70 week prophecy comes right here to this day. The Pharisees should have known. Israel should have known what was looking in them right in the face. They should have recognized what Zechariah was saying, but they didn't. And Jesus wept over that. Well, church, everybody in this place today, everybody we know, everybody is without excuse. Things aren't hidden from our eyes today like that they were from them. They should have known, but they didn't. Today, you do know. What are you going to do with what you know? Are you going to accept His great grace and salvation? Or are you going to deny it? Part of knowing the big picture, part of being the benefit of this 2,000 years later, we know how it's all going to play out. And this is the truth. It's peace for those that know Jesus. And it's damnation for those who don't. And God, who is rich in mercy, has given everybody in this place a choice this morning. In Luke 15, 7, a few chapters back, Jesus says there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. There could be great rejoicing this Palm Sunday, not even just in this church, but in heaven if just one just one comes to know the Savior that I know. Jesus, this week, became our Passover lamb. In Exodus, God looked for the blood, and He saw the blood, and He passed right over. And today, He's still looking for the blood, not the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus. And every sin you've ever committed, every time you've disobeyed your parents, every time, even if you've been unfaithful to your wife, even if you've even if you murdered somebody, God's willing to look over it if He just sees the blood of Jesus. Jesus came as the Lamb, but He's coming back as the Lion. And that day is rapidly, rapidly approaching. So I end the day by 
just sharing a few words from a hymn. Are you washed in the blood? In the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? I pray this Palm Sunday. I pray, if not, that you'll make the decision to let Christ do for you what He has done for me and what He did for, for some of you and what He's done for the rest of the world. I pray that you'll let Him make you. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the message. I hope you understood the message. I hope you'll never forget the two truths we talked about, that Jesus is at the right hand of God and that it is finished. I hope you'll be bold in standing up for what's right and wrong, bold in standing up for your faith. I hope you have a full assurance of your faith. I hope you'll hold fast to your hope without wavering. And I hope you'll consider one another to stir up love and good works. And finally, I hope you have reason to rejoice greatly today. Have a great week, and I hope you have a wonderful Good Friday and a very happy Easter or Resurrection Sunday.